Heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy loving kindness. We thank thee for the word that we've heard this morning, reminding us of your glory that is greater than the glory of that which was manifested during the time of the Exodus, during the time of Moses. And we pray that many more will seek your face, that they may find your grace to help in time of need. Bless the word to us this afternoon as we ask all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I'd like to continue with uh, the next beatitude in the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5. And uh, let's read the first seven verses. The first seven verses of chapter 5 of Matthew. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled and blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy may the lord bless the reading of the verse of the verses we've read this afternoon these are such powerful principles we cannot underestimate the beatitude these beautiful attitudes that a christian must have In some ways, I think I mentioned before, we have the fruit of the Spirit, which are nine different elements and aspects of this fruit, but they are one fruit. And here we have something like seven Beatitudes, maybe some are double counted because they continue on to the other, but these must go hand in hand. As a matter of fact, the one before sort of flows into the one after. And... um, I can't emphasize enough through just going through counseling for dealing with issues in the church, counseling with people, how much grief we could save ourselves, how much, uh, how many blessings we do miss out on when we do not adhere to these principles. This is so, so important. They're basic, but they're fundamental. It's like a building, a piece of iron, a steel girder or a steel column. Nothing fancy about it, but it's strong and it upholds the whole building. These are these principles that that are so important that Jesus taught his disciples and are meant for us. And you will see throughout the whole of his ministry how he constantly comes back to these principles in ways that you may not have thought of. So last week we talked about, or the last time 
we preached on uh, Matthew 5, verse 6, we talked about the righteousness which every one of us should, that a believer should thirst and hunger after. And not only that, I mean, believers have it in a, in a, in a far different way because they're on this side of the cross. They're on this side of salvation. That they are believers and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that they're hungering and thirsting after righteousness is not one so that they gain knowledge and wisdom and understanding enough to be saved, but rather that they gain this wisdom, knowledge and understanding that they thirst and hunger after what they know is best. They know is best or should know is best. Doing the works of righteousness, you'll see how, how it flows into being merciful. So when I ask the question, what, does, what comes to your mind when we talk about mercy? What is the standard definition of what is mercy? You know, we talk about grace. Grace is something that we receive good that we do not deserve. And then the other standard definition for mercy was that we've heard many times is mercy is not getting what we deserve. Well, I want to emphasize this is not the only definition of mercy. We often think of mercy as not getting punishment for our wrongdoings. But it's far more than that. And you will see that, as, as I mentioned before, Jesus is interested in our body, soul, and spirit, not just our spirit. The spirit is the most important part, if you will. Our spiritual life is the most important part, but he's also interested in our, our body, our soul, and our spirit. And some have a different understanding of what soul could be, the seat of emotions, or whatever it could be. But he's interested in all three aspects of our life. So when you look at the, the Greek word for mercy, I looked it up yesterday. There's, you, you get the, the term mercy seat. It's a different word than mercy by itself. Mercy seat is kapora. In, in, the, in the Hebrew, I believe it is. And in, in the Greek, it's hystelarion, the mercy seat. And it's to do with basically the, the reference to the sacrifices that were made during the time of Moses and the Exodus, when the priest would come and sprinkle the Ark of the Covenant and sprinkle the mercy seat, because that's where God's grace showed his grace for the atonement of the nation of Israel. The blood was sprinkled. And you can go to Hebrews chapter 10, and 9 and 10, and you'll relearn that as the writer of Hebrews um, uh, so, so vividly described 
the shadow of things to come, the foreshadowing of what was to come. That without the shedding of blood, there is no more remission of sins, but the, sh- the blood that was shed by the bullocks and goats and turtle doves and pigeons, they would always bring to remembrance our sin because we keep on having to do it year after year, the Bible says, the book of Hebrews says. So there's the, there's the aspect of dealing with sin, God's mercy upon us that he was gracious enough that he loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And how did that happen? Through the shedding of his, the, the blood of his son. He shed his blood so that we can be cleansed, so we can be forgiven. He showed mercy upon us because we deserved as we sing in uh, 2.20 of the Zion Sharp, thy wrath is what I ought to inherit, yet here I stand in grace with thee. Because of our sin, we deserve death. But God in his mercy withheld the punishment of sin and gave us the, the forgiveness of sin through his son. That's one aspect. Maybe we'll come back to that later on, but... If I want to, just to, if I can just, should I say, go to the book of uh, Psalms, chapter 41. If I can get something that is maybe the closest to this beatitude in the Old Testament, you may find something closer. But in Psalm 41, it says in, in the title of this psalm in the description at the top the summary verse one God's care of the poor God's care of the poor blessed is he that considereth the poor the Lord would deliver him in time of trouble the Lord will preserve him and keep him alive and he shall be blessed upon the earth and thou will not deliver him unto the will of the enemies there's a blessing that God promises the, his people in the Old Testament, if you consider the poor in your living, in your life, you will be blessed. The, the Lord will deliver him in the time of trouble. I think he's, he's talking about the one that he considers the poor. He will deliver also the poor, perhaps, but he's saying, blessed is he that considereth the poor. The Lord will deliver him in the time of trouble. God will bless you and me when it's maybe our turn. When we become poor or when we're in a difficult situation, when we're suffering pain or fear or feel like we're defeated. This is a promise in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there are, there are just scores of verses where Christ showed mercy. And it wasn't always like to the, to the, to the, um, the adulterer of chapter 8 of John, where he says, you know, your, you know your, uh, your faith has saved, go and see no more, right? I, think, I forget if that was he said to her. But the adulteress... No man condemns you, neither do I condemn you. But go and sin no more. 
To another woman, he said, your faith has saved you. Go and sin no more. But there's a, there's a time where he came to those that were poor, those that he had compassion on, the 5,000. The 5,000 that he had compassion on. And he saw them as sheep that, as a matter of fact, I think before this uh, um, chapter, he saw these, this, this multitude of people that were following him. And he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he had compassion on them. So the, word, the Greek word for mercy here is really the word for compassion. Compassion. And when you read about the word compassion, I, I looked it up. You know, there are some uh, words that, which we don't use today. You, we say today, I love you with my, all my heart. But do we ever say, my bowels move because of you? Or for you? That's what they used back then, you know, full of bowels and compassion. Because that was the seat of their feeling for those that were in need, those that were in dire situations. You have this feeling about, oh, like a pit in your stomach. And so the word there, I looked it up in the Greek, it's actually the word, I can't even pronounce it, splankton uh, or something like that. It comes from, it's the root word for spleen or intestine. And it is a, a word that really goes inside of you if you really have compassion for someone that is in dire need. You, you see these uh, pictures of abject poverty. I don't know if you remember the, was it, what was that, what was the prize for photography? Pulitzer, right? They showed you one, one year they showed you, there was a stark, stark reminder of, of how blessed we are and the, the, the austere conditions that they have in the African countries where there's famine and you see this child sitting in a dirt and behind him is a vulture. This is real stuff. And you say, how can I not be moved by something like that? So what Jesus Christ is saying here is not just a one aspect of mercy, and that is, you know, forgiving your brother, but he's saying, blessed are you if you are merciful, if you have compassion, because he knew the environment, the atmosphere, he knew what was going on in Israel at the time. He knew what the Pharisees were thinking. He knew what the, what the Sadducees were thinking and the, and the scribes. And he indicted them in chapter three of Matthew, uh, 23 of Matthew. And he laid the foundation before his ministry began. And he said, look, not only do you need to be meek, not only do you need to hunger and thirst after the righteousness, this is how you will be hungering and thirsting after righteousness. It flows into being merciful. I think of um, Matthew chapter 25. Go back to that chapter again. When everything's said and done, 
when the judgment will occur, when the sheep are separated from the goats. And he says to he says to those on the right hand, he shall set the sheep on the right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand. What would he say? Come, ye blessed. Come, ye blessed of my father. Why? Because you are merciful. How were you merciful? For I was hungry, you gave me meat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. Naked, you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, you came unto me. By hungering and thirsting after righteousness, you flow into doing the works of mercy. And you do them not because it's an obligation, but because you have the heart of Christ, you have the bowels of Christ. Uh, the, go, go into um, Philippians. I love this verse. Philippians chapter 2. What does Paul appeal to in the church when he wants unity amongst the brethren? If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if there be any comfort in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, he's reminding them that as Christ was merciful to you, you need to be merciful to one another in many ways. I'm just trying to, I'm just thinking of a situation now that some of us are aware of where someone needs to be taken care of, a young little boy. You know, in the time of Rome, when children weren't wanted, they were placed on the, on the dirt outside the city. And, and guess who came to pick them up? We talked about this before. It was the Christians. It was the Christians. Remember the last sermon on those that hunger and thirst after righteousness? It was the observance of this one atheistic preacher by the name of, uh, teacher by the name of uh, agnostic he was, Rodney Stark. He wasn't a believer, but he noticed something in the early church when there were strangers that came in, when there were orphans and widows to be taken care of, when there were those abused, it was the Christians that came in and they took care of these needs. That's showing mercy. Christ gave it a name. Mercy. This work of righteousness, 
this attitude of righteousness, this heart of righteousness, Christ gave it a name. And there's a word in the Old Testament. We talked about the New Testament definition of mercy. If you look in the Old Testament, I forget how many times, 200 and something times was it mentioned in the Old Testament. It's called hesed. It's named or given a, a, a word several times, loving kindness. Loving kindness. It's got an aspect of love. It's got an aspect of generosity. But many times it's just given the, just the word mercy. And the context was that you could feel the suffering of the individual and you would do something about it. And it's called compassion. I, I looked up, what's the etymology of that, of that word, hesed? And they say scholars are divided. They don't know. They can't pick, pinpoint where that word comes from. What's the origin of that word? You can go to Strong's Concordance. It'll give you like five or six different words for it. But they still don't know where it came from. But... One said, it comes from the meaning of getting inside of you. This whole situation gets under your skin so that you feel what, you, they, what they feel. We know that word today as empathy. We can empathize with somebody. We have compassion for them because we've seen it, we've experienced perhaps, or we can sympathize in another way. But it gets under your skin, it's part of you. And not only does it, is it that we do something out of obligation, we've done our duty, we've given to charity, I can get a charitable receipt for it. But it's, it goes to a greater extent that their hurt becomes your hurt. That their pain becomes your pain. Have you ever been in a situation like that? You know, the scripture says, David writes, the reproaches that fell on, fell on them fell on me. I believe he's speaking of the Messiah. He felt their pain. That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 4 that he was not unfamiliar with our infirmities, but was, he felt everything that we felt as a, as a human. God became man and felt what we feel as humans. He was a high priest that didn't just come in like a, an ambassador would come to a country and start dealing, dishing out things and writing bills. And He came and he felt it and he knew what we went through and what we are going through and he decided to do something about it. And that's the key. It's not only to say, I feel so sorry for them, but what am I going to do about it? That's the mercy that he's talking about. Remember we talked about this, this positional righteousness? In Christ we have been uh, justified and we are now have been declared righteous 
by God because of Christ's righteousness, but there was a practical righteousness. Doing the works of Christ. Being his arms, his feet, his legs. So mercy is like that. When he's saying be merciful, don't just say, oh, those poor individuals in Zambia or in, in, in Nigeria or in, in back when I was in Australia. There was the um, Biafrans. Anyone remember that? The Biafrans, yeah. That, it was well known, worldwide known. There was extreme famine. And everybody knew about the Biafrans. If I remember the, the, the correct name, I think it was called Biafrans. And everybody knew about it. To say, oh, but those poor Biafrans. What are we doing about it? Are we helping them out? Just, oh, no, we're just interested in the spiritual. How would you like to be in that position? That's not being in their skin. That's not walking a mile in the moccasins. Or a mile in their shoes. And Jesus said, come, ye blessed of my Father. Because when you did it unto one of these, you've done it unto me. You remember Jesus when someone said to him, Lord, I want to follow you wherever you go. What did Jesus say? He said, the birds of the air have nests, the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Even as a baby, he was turned away from the inn. He had to go into some stable, manger, cave, whatever it was, turned away. And he never lived in riches, Look at what uh, James says. I love the prophet, uh, the, uh, the apostle James. He was so practical. He just didn't mince his words. It wasn't his words, but the Holy Spirit. This is what he says in chapter 2. My brethren, have not faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Don't be partial. Don't be biased. Like Jesus says, don't just call the ones that can call you. Don't just invite those that can invite you back. For if a man come to your assembly as a if they come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and the goodly apparel, and they come in one as a poor man in a vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that wears the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou in the good place, but say to the poor, Stand thou here by my footstool. Are you not partial? In yourselves are uh, you become judges of evil thoughts. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he hath pr promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not <coughs> rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seat? Do they not blaspheme the worthy name by which ye are called? If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect of persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the 
law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye and do so as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Now listen to what he says in verse 13. For he shall have judgment with no mercy, without mercy, that has showed no mercy. Doesn't that make you shudder in your shoes? He that, he shall have judgment without mercy who has showed no mercy. And look what it says. And mercy rejoices over judgment. Mercy, the word rejoices here in other translations is, is mercy triumphs over judgment. I can see the, I can see the connection because when someone's triumph, he's rejoicing that he has won. Mercy will always trump judgment. And it trumps the Pharisee's judgment who said to, this, to the publican, you know, or about the publican, look at this man. I'm not like other men like this man here. He is judging him. He was showing no mercy to him. But what did the publican say? Lord, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. What's the other aspect of mercy? What's the other aspect of mercy? See, the one that we just talked about, really, if you really analyze it, saying, well, it doesn't really fit in the definition of uh, not getting what you deserved. How is... How is giving something, some food to the hungry, fit under that definition. So, well, he deserves not to get fed. Really? It doesn't fit. Here we're talking about loving kindness, generosity, showing compassion on those that are in need. The word indifference comes to me. You say, well, I don't have any ill feelings to that person. But neither do you have any good feelings to that person. If you can see a situation, if I can see a situation, and I don't respond with the bowels of Christ, I'm not showing mercy. I say, well, I just don't want anything to do with it. Yes, then you've made a decision. You have said something. I have said something. I don't want to help these people. For what reason? If you have the money, 
if you have the time, if you have the ability, if you have the energy, then what would refrain you and me? Sorry, I'm not saying you, you. I'm saying you, all of us. If we, what would withhold us from helping? Except it bothers us. That's another key aspect of compassion and mercy. It requires sacrifice. Having mercy, if I can call it sacrifice, it requires an exchange of our time for their time. I remember Brother Willie, I was still say, I asked him, Brother Willie, can, can, do you have time to talk to me today? He said, I'll make time. I will never forget that. He said, well, I don't have time. Well, I'll make time. I'll go out of my way to have time. That's what merciful means. Their, you, their pain becomes your pain. If you, don't have, if you feel no pain, if I feel no pain, am I merciful? If I don't feel their pain. The other aspect, of course, is when it comes to interpersonal conflict, sin. When it comes to an infraction where members meet, that's where pain is, where members meet, arthritis, joints, where members meet. Or your brother, the Bible, Jesus calls him your brother. Could be your neighbor. If there is an infraction, if there's something that is between us that has that has strained our relationship and I refuse to forgive. Why? Because he has done something so bad to me, I could never forgive that. We know the parable in Matthew chapter 18 of the man that owed a hundred talents to the king and the king was about to throw him into prison and he pleaded to have mercy and the king was um, merciful and frankly, it says, forgave everything. The 10,000 talents, sorry. Then came the hundred pence. And he went to his friend and he owed him a hundred pennies, I believe, and he said, give me everything or get you, you, you have, otherwise I'm going to throw you into prison. He refused to forgive after the brother or his friend owed him a far less sum. I'm often drawn to Ephesians chapter 4. This is a reminder. Philippians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 4. Grieve not the Holy Spirit, verse 30, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another. Here it is. Tender hearted. Have that feeling in your heart. This, you feel the pain. 
of your brother or sister, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. We didn't deserve that forgiveness. We never deserved that Christ would die in our stead, die an eternal death, shed his blood on the cross, be rejected by the creation that he, he, he brought into existence. And then I say, sorry, my, my pain is bigger than that. I can never forgive. That should really make us feel ashamed when we cannot forgive. When we cannot say, no, it's too big. Peter says, 2 Peter chapter 1, you've forgotten that you were purchased, you were purged from your old sins. You have forgotten you were purged from your old sin. You've forgotten what Jesus Christ did for you. He shed his blood for you and now you can't forgive someone else. That's just one aspect of what he was talking about. That's not showing mercy. You know, we can, and I've been guilty of it. I've been guilty of maybe being too harsh on somebody or too exacting on somebody. But the older I get, the more I realize I need that forgiveness. The older I get, the more I realize my life is coming to a close, perhaps before many others. And I realize, what's it all about? Did I really have to be that exacting? Did I really have to be that harsh? Did I really have to stand on my rights? I love what the man said. I don't know where this story I got before, but when he was demanding his rights from this brother and the preacher said to him, you want your rights? Christ died for your wrongs. You see, God wants us to be like him. That's what he said towards the end of the chapter. He said, so that you may be called the children of your father. That's what God did for us. He wants to be, us to be like him. He wants to be merciful like him. The very next chapter 6, he says that if you do not forgive your brother his trespasses, neither will your heavenly father forgive you for your trespasses. Remember, mercy triumphs, rejoices over judgment. My judgment, your judgment, my criticism, my rights. Mercy will completely triumph if we have mercy. You know, the, I looked at... I looked at that scripture that says... I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You know where that comes from? 
I searched for every scripture that says mercy and sacrifice in my Bible app. And it came from a minor prophet, not the major prophet, came from the book of Hosea. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And that's what Jesus told the Pharisees. I desire mercy and not sacrifice in Matthew 9, I think it was. You know what, you know what God was dealing with there? You know what Hosea was dealing with there? An unfaithful wife come from whoredom, went into whoredom, the scripture says. But God says, take her back because this is my heart. I forgive. I'd rather have mercy and not sacrifice. Don't give me a sacrifice if your heart's not with me. It means nothing to me. It's, it's, it's a obnoxious in my nostrils. I'd rather have mercy upon you than you try to earn my favor with your sacrifices. When you don't really mean it. This is a deep beatitude. And it's applied across so many different aspects of our lives. Do we want to be called the children of our Father? Do we want to be called, come ye blessed of my Father? On that day, when all is said and done. May the Lord bless the word to him be the glory evermore. There's an account of Napoleon I'm sort of perplexed with his life. He was a military leader, could be very ruthless at times, but He had some kind of a fear of God to some extent. Can't say how he died, whether he was, there were some reports that he had repented. But there was an occasion where the mother came up to Napoleon pleading for her son. The son apparently conspired against, he was some kind of an officer in Napoleon's army and somehow conspired against the state. And he, this is the second time he came up for this, for such an infraction. So Napoleon was going to basically put him to death. If I remember the name correctly, his name was La Jolie. And she pleaded, she pleaded with Napoleon, and Napoleon said, he doesn't deserve mercy, because she was pleading for mercy. He doesn't deserve mercy. This is the second time that he's come before me. The first time he was acquitted because they didn't have enough evidence, I think. But she said to him, but your majesty, if he, was, if, if he didn't deserve mercy, it wouldn't be called mercy. If that's the reason, I'm asking for mercy, not for what he deserved. Now, we don't need Napoleon to tell us that. 
or he, he, he or the mother of, of the son to tell us that, and he actually let him off, he acquitted him. But we have a far greater here, a far greater, the king of the universe, the God, the father of lights, who tells us over and over again that forgive one another. As Christ forgave us, we could save ourselves a lot of grief a lot of grief just by adhering I speak first to myself by adhering to these simple principles and we have the power to do them because we have the Holy Spirit and that's my plea to all of us, all of us today to just apply those principles in our lives you don't have to think of all these different schemes of how to deal with this problem and that problem just stick to those principles yeah, it could be painful. It's painful to humble ourselves. It takes energy and time to get out of our way and do something, to go and visit somebody, to take money out of our bank account and support this worthy cause. There's a lot of that, but don't forget who gave it to us in the first place. Who gave us all this? Who gave us the opportunities? So we really don't have an excuse. All we should be doing is passing on the love that God gave us, the grace that he gave us, the finances that he gave us, the time that he gave us, the energy that he gave us. He just said, I just want you to distribute to those that I've asked you to distribute to. To him be the glory evermore. Amen. This concludes our service.